Well, I invite you to remain standing and turn with me in God's Word. Uh, first to Luke chapter 22, but if you can put a finger in Jeremiah 31, uh, that will be our main passage this morning. Uh, if you're looking for Luke 22 in one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 882. We're going to read just verse 22, uh, hopefully by this time a familiar verse. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Beloved saints, this is God's own word, and as such, it deserves our undivided attention. Please listen. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And now, if you will, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, our main passage this morning. Again, if you're using the the church Bible, you'll find that starting on page 658. Uh, It's a long chapter. We're going to be focusing in on verses 31 through 34 this morning. So that's what I'll start by reading. Verses 31 through uh, through 34. Again, this is God's word. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he would uh, bless not just the reading, but the preaching of his word this morning. Our gracious God, you know our fickle hearts. You know that we fear the truth as much as we desire it. That we're as likely to run from your truth as we are to run to it. That we can suppress your glorious truth without a second thought. And so our confidence as we draw near to your word is that you are greater than our fears and that you are not bound by our sin and that your word frees those who are in bondage. May we not just believe these things, but may we witness them this morning as we open your word. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we have crossed the halfway point in our study of Jeremiah. The first half of the book has been quite heavy. Uh... One warning of judgment after another, one call to repentance after another, one offer of grace after another, so many chances, so many opportunities to escape judgment, and yet each was met with stubbornness, obstinance, with hard hearts and deaf ears. And then we saw the exile come. 
God raised up a foreign king, a, a pagan king, to, to, to come in and take his people into captivity, into bondage, into slavery. And they were carted off. And there in a foreign land, they were told that they would dwell there for 70 years before they saw their homes again. And so God told them, build, build homes, plant gardens, get used to it here because you'll be here a while. And yet, with those instructions came that word of hope that we heard last week. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, plans for peace, plans for wholeness, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's as soon as God's people were in exile, as soon as they were in slavery and captivity, imprisoned and enslaved, that's when hope came flooding in. While they were safe at home, God was continually sending them words of judgment. Ironically, it's only as that judgment came that hope also entered the picture. And so the second half of Jeremiah focuses on on God's plans to bless his people. But blessing is something that is easier said than done. There are obstacles to blessing God's people. Because you see, God is righteous. He's holy. He's just. And justice requires things like evil and wickedness being punished and and goodness being rewarded. But here's the problem. God's people have plenty of wickedness to punish and not much good to reward. So how is God going to accomplish his his plan to bless his people? And that's the story that chapter 31 begins to unfold for us. How God is going to overcome these obstacles and bless his rebellious children. My hope this morning, uh, as we focus in on verses 31, we'll look at all the verses, but 31 to 34 especially, is really to, to drive home this one point, and it's this. If you belong to Jesus, you are a new creation, and your sin no longer defines you. If you belong to Jesus, you are a new creation and you are no longer defined by your sin. That's how God accomplishes this. And the key to understanding this is found in what God calls his new covenant. And so that's going to be uh, our focus, what we're going to explore today, try to understand what this new covenant is. And so first we want to look at the old covenant and its limitations. That makes sense. It's a good place to start. And then we'll look at how the new covenant overcomes these limitations. And then I'd just like to make a few reflections at the end, how this ought to uh, affect our lives and our relationships uh, with one another. So that's our plan today. I'm sure uh, verses 31 through 34 sound familiar to many of you. Uh, These words are cited in Hebrews 8 and certainly referenced in uh, Jesus' words as he served his disciples the Last Supper that night when he was to be betrayed by Judas, uh, that last meal he shared in the upper room, uh, those words we recite each week at the Lord's Supper. 
God says he promised to make a new covenant that is not like the covenant he made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt uh, so many years before. So before we get into uh, the new covenant, it might be good to familiarize or at least refamiliarize ourselves with that other covenant that God is saying it won't be like, uh, sometimes called the old covenant, sometimes called simply the law. So what is the Old Covenant? Well, first, a covenant uh, is an agreement. A covenant is a a contract of sorts that regulates a relationship. So the U.S. Constitution is a covenant between the government and the people. It regulates the relationship. Marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife. That's why there are vows, or at least should be, uh, in a marriage ceremony. The Old Covenant is the agreement that God entered into with the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt before they entered the, the promised land while they were sitting at that mountain, Sinai. It was a good covenant. Beautiful and wonderful, truly wonderful. Because in that covenant, God revealed who he is. Righteous and holy, powerful and just. A rewarder of those who do good and a punisher of those who do evil. And yet as wonderful as that covenant was, as beautiful as it was, it had this tragic flaw to it. It relied on sinners. And sinners always fail. And they will always let you down. Jeremiah has been using a few images to portray Israel's relationship to God under the Old Covenant and how they have failed to keep up their end of the deal. The first image that uh, Jeremiah has used early on and and even picked up in, in the first six verses of chapter 31 is that of an adulterous bride. God said that when he found Israel in the wilderness, fresh out of Egypt, that Israel was like a young maiden. And he took her for his bride. We heard that in our, in our scripture reading, even though I was a husband to you. And he promised certain things to his young bride. He promised to provide for her, to protect her. And he promised that under his protective care, she would become many in number, a mighty nation. And all he required from her in return was that she be faithful. That she not go after other gods, other lovers. That she not defile herself with spiritual adultery. That's where Jeremiah opened. That's... uh, Uh, where the beginning chapters of Jeremiah started. And and he tells us what happened. Israel, that young wife, played the harlot with foreign gods. She spread her adulteries far and wide. How long would you be able to look the other way for a spouse who was habitually cheating on you? Eventually, God could look the other way no longer. And as we saw in chapter 3, he exercised his right to a divorce. He sent Israel away, free to cling to her new lover, 
no longer his responsibility, his care, his charge. But as we come to the middle of Jeremiah, God says he has plans to bring this adulterous bride back home. To make her his bride once more. And part of that delights us. We we love stories of, of reconciliation and restoration. This is what we hope for. But there's a problem, and, and it's a huge problem. According to the Old Covenant, that perfect, beautiful revelation of God's righteousness, a husband who has divorced his wife for adultery is not free to remarry her. Deuteronomy 24. If a husband of an adulterous wife chooses to exercise that prerogative, it's over, it's final, God says. That's his law. His rule, a reflection of his own character. To take an adulterer back is to defile the house, to defile the husband. Now, we might regularly break God's law, but he doesn't. How is he going to take back his adulterous bride when his own law says he can't? This is a huge impediment. There's another way God talks about his relationship with, with his people, and that's of a, as a father to a son. That's the language that comes up in our chapter in verses 7 through 9. And again, the old covenant has something to say about fathers and sons. The le- uh, not the least of which is the fifth commandment. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Under the old covenant, life and blessing for a son is based upon his obedience to his father. How blessed would you be if it was based upon how obedient you were to your parents? Again, Israel is in trouble. They have not been obedient children, quite the opposite. And yet it gets worse. Let me know if that starts uh, becoming a theme here, right? Every time there's a problem, it gets worse. According to the second commandment, sons could also be punished for the sins of their fathers as well. And that's meant to be a reflection uh, of our relationship with Adam, our first father, and how we're accountable for his sins. He wasn't just acting on his own behalf, but he was acting for all humanity. And so under the old covenant, even if you found some way to perfectly obey your parents, not that anyone ever did, but if you could, say you could, even then you're not off the hook because of the sins of your parents. So how? How can God bless not just his adulterous bride, whom he's divorced, but his rebellious children, when his own law says that it's obedience that leads to blessing. Not a lot of hope, is there? There's one final way that God talks about his relationship with his people. Uh, It's that of a shepherd and sheep, and we see this in verses 10 through 14. 
He says that when he sent them away into Babylon and Assyria, they were like sheep who had been scattered far from the safety of the shepherd and the fold. And now they're exposed to all the dangers of the wilderness. And and it's their doing, it's their sin that has taken them there. It's their rebellion, their desires. There is no other way to put it. God's people are their own biggest problem. Their problem is not their circumstances. Their problem is not a lack of opportunity. Their problem is not some shortcoming on God's part. They had everything they could ask, possibly ask for, and more, far more. And they threw it all away. And now they've been sent away as disobedient children and cursed. They've been divorced as an adulterous bride. They are hard-hearted. They are deaf and unwilling to listen and repent. What happens if God waits for them to fix things? A long time. He's going to wait forever. It will never happen. He's going to have to pursue them. And that's what he says in verse 10. He will gather them. He will bring them back. But how? How when there are so many impediments, so many obstacles? Their sin, their adultery, their rebellion. But it's not just their sin and their adultery and rebellion that are obstacles. It's God's law. His law, the old covenant, forbids that he bless sinners. It forbids reunion with adulterers. The biggest obstacle isn't just our sin, it's God's righteousness, his law. And so it can never be the vehicle to bring blessing to God's people. Something new, something different is needed, something better. And that's why those words in our passage are so wonderful. God says he's making a new covenant that's not like the old one. Then he says what he'll do through it. He says he'll put his law in their hearts, verse 33. And he doesn't mean that religion will become solely internal and private and and that we'll get rid of all outward forms of religion and standards and institutions and it's just going to be you, God, in a quiet place. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that a law written on stone tablets and put in the temple have no power to change you. If there's going to be obedience, if there's going to be a change, it's going to have to start inside of who you are. He's going to have to deal with the root of the problem, the hearts of his people. Because if he waits for his people to change, he'll wait forever. If he waits for them to succeed, that day will never come. If he leaves any part of blessing them to them, they will find a way to destroy it. And so in the new covenant, God says he will do it all. From beginning to end, every part, he will do it. The new covenant provides a way to to blessing that depends solely upon God for its success. But think about what that means. 
I know we're covering a lot of ground here, so let me just try to rehearse this and try to put the pieces together. He's already said in chapter 29 that blessing can only follow judgment. Remember the false prophets were, were saying, you know, we don't have to go through judgment. We can just go straight to blessing. And God says, that's a lie. Those are false prophets. I did not command those words. Don't listen to them. So here's the tension. We know God wants to bless his people. We know that he can't do it through the old covenant. It will take a new covenant. We know that blessing can only follow judgment. And we know that if God leaves any part of success in our hands, we'll destroy it. And he's going to have to do it all. That means that for the new covenant to succeed and blessing to come, God will have to be the one to endure that judgment. Or all is lost. Can you see why when Jesus served his disciples the Last Supper as a picture of his death, he said, this cup that is poured out for you, meaning his blood, is the new covenant in his blood. It was in Jesus' death that the new covenant promised in Jeremiah, the idea of blessing through judgment was finally accomplished. All that God promised, all that he foretold, it was achieved through Jesus' death on the cross, through his blood shed for us. Does that mean that no one was saved before Jesus? Not at all. Nor does it mean that that God's people were saved through different means before Jesus came. The old... The old covenant was never meant to bring salvation. That was not what it was ever meant to do. Its job was to show God's people their need for his grace. Salvation has always been a work of God by grace through faith. Even the idea of God's suffering in order to bless is much older than the book of Jeremiah. Isn't that what God promised to Adam and Eve right after they sinned? I'll send a child who will be born. He'll be, he'll be bruised on the heel. He'll be crushed on the heel, but he will crush your enemy. He, through, his, through his suffering, victory will come. Or, or what about Genesis 15 with, with Abraham when he acted this out? And he said, split the animals in two, and then God walked between them saying, I'm willing to endure death if that's what it takes to bless you. God was telling the saints of old that he would suffer in the future to bless them. Abraham believed that word and, and, it, and he was saved by his faith. What's new at the time of Jesus, what's different at the time of Jesus is that what God said he would do in the future is now accomplished. Abraham looked ahead to the blood of Jesus. We look back, but it's the same thing. So what exactly is it that God accomplishes through all this? What are the benefits you receive through this new covenant? Look at verses 21 and 22. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Did you hear what God called Israel? (laughs) 
He called her a virgin. The adulterous lover, the harlot, a virgin. Is that what you expect? Maybe forgiven or possibly restored. But but virgin? Being a virgin isn't something you can become again. It's an attribute you're born with, and once it's lost, it can't be recovered. It's gone forever. To be a virgin again, Israel would have to be made completely new, become an entirely new creation. The old would have to pass, and something new would have to come. That's exactly what he's implying here. It's exactly what he's saying. God would do a work in her that could only be likened to becoming a new creation. And that's what God is able to accomplish by his grace. To be a new creation doesn't mean that there's no connection with what existed before. You don't cease to exist and something new takes place. There's no memories or anything like that. It means you are so radically transformed that the only way to describe it is something new, a new person. That's why God is able to take Israel back. Because he has completely wiped away her sin. That's what he does by suffering. Pays the price, takes it away. So what he's bringing home has been washed and purified, cleansed, is is a new creation. This is what we get when God does all the work. But it's not just for Israel, it's for any sinner who surrenders and turns to God for grace. It's for you, and it's for me. It's, it's, It's for this reason God is able to bless us. No longer are we seen as rebellious children deserving wrath. No longer are we liable for the sins of our parents. That's life in the old covenant. What does the new covenant say? Look at verse 29. In those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. When you turn to Jesus for grace, you're adopted. Out of your old reality and into God's family. As far as God is concerned, as far as his justice is concerned, Adam is no longer your father, nor any other earthly sinner. God is your father. Your sin has not only been removed, but you are no longer defined by a sinful father for whose sin you can be judged. Your father is the perfectly righteous God of heaven. You're no longer the rebellious child of a rebellious father. That's no longer your identity. You are, as verse 20 says, God's dear son, his darling child. That's your identity in the new covenant. You are counted to be as righteous as Jesus is. Your blessing is is based upon how well he has obeyed, not how well you have obeyed. This is what God accomplishes, how he accomplishes all the blessings he's promised. This is how he overcomes the obstacles of the old covenant. These these are the blessings of the new covenant. Through it, you have been united to Jesus Christ and your sin no longer defines you. 
There's a book I, I like to use uh, for premarital counseling uh, called When Sinners Say I Do. Done so many weddings uh, in the past year, a lot of people are saying, yeah, we've just read it. <laughs> One of the early chapters is titled Waking Up with the Worst of Sinners. And of course, you expect the chapter to say something like this. So you thought that person you fell in love with was perfect, but now you realize what a sinner he or she is. Now that would of course be true, but that's not what the chapter's about. It's about how much those relationships make you aware of your own sin and frailties and failures. What hope is there when you wake up and you look in the mirror disgusted by your sin, feeling hopeless and helpless in your fight against it. When you feel like you are the worst sinner in the world, the answer is that in Jesus you're no longer defined by that sin. You are a faithful bride and an obedient child. That's how God sees you. A virgin, a dear and obedient son. Now, it would be easy to hear this and be grateful, but to give no thought for how it should transform your earthly relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, friends with fellow believers. This is where the benefits of the new covenant are so beautiful and wonderful. See, the old covenant could tell you what is good, but it could not affect change within you. But in the new covenant, God makes you a new creation. He performs heart surgery. He he brings about real and true growth, not all at once, but real and true growth. And he enables you to do the things that the law declared to be good but could not give you the strength to do. But to get there, you have to remember that the power of the new covenant is the cross of Jesus Christ, not your own. And that should affect how you treat others. Husbands and wives, how do you deal with your differences? Do you simply bring out the list of rules and expectations and demand explanations for failures? Is the law the only language you speak to one another? Do you meet each other in the courtroom or do you meet each other at the foot of the cross? If God couldn't have a successful marriage based upon obedience to the law, what makes you think you will be able to? You need to learn to have grace with each other, to love as you have been loved, to forgive freely and often. Parents, do you demand perfection from your children? Has God demanded perfection? From you. Children, do you blame your parents for all your problems? Do you want God to judge you based upon your earthly parents or your heavenly parents? Beloved, do more than appreciate the new covenant. Let it transform you. Let it shape you. 
Live your lives in light of it. The final few verses of this chapter contain a promise from God. Using the imagery of the first creation, he tells us something about the new. God says, for him to abandon his people would require that creation itself disappear. In other words, is the world still standing? Then God's promise is still good. That's our God. He makes promises and he keeps them. He is faithful. And he wants us to learn to rest confidently in those promises. It should be no surprise then that Jesus told his disciples to repeat the meal he connected to the new covenant often. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a visible reminder that God keeps his promises. Each week as we come to the supper, we we are reminded that Jesus has purchased us back from sin. And he declares us to be virgins, unstained by adultery. He's told us that his father would judge us according to his obedience and not ours. And he's promised that all who believe in him will be with him in heaven. And so as we draw near to this table, this is what he promises. And so let us come as as those who have been washed and made clean. Let us draw near as those who are loved by their father, as those who have been brought near by their shepherd. I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Brian to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious God, Father, our faithful groom, our persistent shepherd, we praise you. We thank you that you left nothing to us, that you have taken care of every detail of our salvation so that nothing might go wrong, that even the judgment we deserve you have borne so that you might bless us. We ask that you would teach us to live lives that honor you, that you would Teach us to walk out of new hearts that we would learn to show patience, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness knowing that grace alone offers hope. All of this we ask through our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. May his name be praised. Amen.